New Testament to chapter 3 and to the page that has verses 11 through 26 on it. That'll be our text. The topic, Peter indicts the nation of Israel of killing their Messiah in ignorance. And then he encourages them that when they repent, he will return and establish the promised kingdom on earth. The title of our message, The Ignorant Miss the Bliss. Verse 11. (laughs) You people in the front row, calm down. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you look so intently at us, as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer... He has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who has preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of the restoration of all things, which God has spoke by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall utterly be destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Let's pray together. Lord, we appreciate the boldness of Peter, how he took this opportunity that you gave him, Lord, to talk to his Jewish brothers and sisters and to speak to them from the scripture, Lord, about their Messiah, his first and second comings, his mercy upon them for their ignorance and having him killed, his desire that they would be saved. I pray, Lord, this morning for us as Christians in the 21st century that we would understand the context of these verses, your dear and deep love for Israel, but also the application for our own lives, Lord, as those who want to have the joy of the Lord, which is contagious to others around us. Fill us with your spirit. Give us a sense, Lord, of your word. May we be 
emboldened by it, even as Peter was. We thank you and praise you. And everyone who agreed said, amen. If the items on the menu were things like gefilte fish, kishkas, potato latka, and salmon lox, you'd know you're in a Jewish deli or restaurant, and you'd know I wouldn't be with you. (laughs) Our text in Acts uses terms like times of refreshing, times of restoration. It uses names like servant and holy one and just. The words are more common to us, but if you're a Jew, it reads like a Jewish theological menu. The terms describe the promised kingdom of God on the earth, and the names are Old Testament titles of the Jewish Messiah. Peter told the nation of Israel that Jesus was their long-awaited Messiah. He came offering to establish the kingdom of God on earth. He did not establish the kingdom because they had him killed. Since they did it in ignorance, God was still offering them the kingdom. When Israel repents, when there is national repentance, Their Messiah, Jesus Christ, will be sent to them to rule and reign on the earth. That's the gist of this message. We want to keep the Jewish context of Peter's sermon in mind, but we also want to discover its application for us as Christians living in the church age between the first and second comings of Jesus. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, your walk indicts ignorant men and women, and number two, God's word invites ignorant men and women. First of all, we'll see in verses 11 through 16 how your walk indicts ignorant men and women. Peter and John had just been used by God to bring a remarkable healing to a lame beggar. He's a man who sat daily, was carried daily, and sat outside the eastern gate of the Jewish temple begging for alms. You are specifically told that he leaped. Very significant because the Jews who gathered around Peter, John, and the formerly lame beggar would certainly have thought of this verse from Isaiah. It's Isaiah 35, verse 6. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing, water shall burst forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. It is one of the famous passages that speaks of conditions that will prevail on the earth when the Messiah establishes the kingdom of God on the earth. If you were a Jew and you saw a lame man leaping like a deer, you would think something was going on involving the kingdom of God on earth. And Peter is going to tell them exactly what was going on. The lame man leaping was a token to the Jews that their Messiah had come to rule the earth from Jerusalem in fulfillment of many promises and prophecies from the scriptures. The problem was they had killed their Messiah. And so Peter, in verse 11, now as the lame man who was healed on, uh, held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. It says here he held on to Peter and John, but not for support. We talked last week about what a complete healing this was, not just putting his body back together, the ankle bones and the muscles and sinews and all, but he was immediately able to get up, walk, and leap, things that he had never done before and didn't learn to do. He immediately began to do them. And so he was completely healed. So when it says he held on to him, it's a clue that there's something more here. 
He was clinging to them the way a child holds his father or a mother in a crowd. In the middle of all this talk, there's a little devotional insight that God wants to give you. It's a picture for us of a childlike faith, how he was starting over even at above 40 years old as a spiritual babe, holding on to Peter and John as if he were clinging to them in a crowd. Not so much scared, but just, just holding on. And it's a, it's a beautiful picture, really, of what God does in restoring and, and then regenerating us as his children. Childlike faith. Solomon's porch was a covered portico, big word, which is a porch with columns. Uh, run, it ran the entire length of the eastern portion of the temple's outer court. It was a great large outdoor location for a large assembly to gather. And so in verse 12, when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? Men of Israel especially should not marvel that God was in their midst doing supernatural works. The Jews were proud of their history. They knew their history well. It is teeming with the supernatural. Therefore, they should have expected the supernatural. It ought to be weird to them if supernatural things are not happening. These are the people, you remember, whom Moses, you know, did the the plagues and all in Egypt and then parting the Red Sea. These are the people whom a cloud covered by day and a fire gave them warmth by night in the wilderness for 40 years. These are the people who received manna from heaven for 40 years. These are the people who had multiplied miracles from that time all throughout their history. And then they see a lame man leaping, and they say, guy, what's going on? And Peter actually rebukes them. He says, you of all people marveling that God would do a miracle. It's a mild rebuke perhaps to us or a reproof at least. We ought to expect God not necessarily to do you know, miracles all the time, but to do his work in his way. I, I hesitate on the miracle thing because I don't want anybody to leave with a burden. It, it's typical of people when they want to whip you up into a miracle frenzy to, to say, you know, God wants to do miracles, but you're holding him back. It's your fault. Everything's your fault all the time. Uh, and, and you know, God's just not like that. He's not, if he wants to take you aside and tell you something's your fault, he will. But everything in the church isn't your fault. God wants to do miracles and will do miracles and, and can do miracles. We, but, and we do need to re- return to a place of expectation that God wants to work. And then when he doesn't work the way we think he ought to, we ought to just be patient and walk by faith. He still wants to save. He still wants to help. He still wants to heal. Oftentimes there are more things going on than you understand or realize, and so we should just have an expectation that God is at work, and then let him do his work. Now Peter turns their attention away from he and John so that he can direct them to Jesus. He says, we didn't do this. You're not thinking we did this. All effective ministry depends upon self-denial so that people can see Jesus. All of us have a tendency to think that we are more important than we really are, to draw attention to ourselves, thinking it will help draw attention to the Lord. John the Baptist 
uttered some of the greatest words of all time when he said, I must decrease so that he may increase. Before you do any ministry of any kind, that ought to be included in your prayer in a sincere way, thinking, Lord, help me just to decrease so that people don't even know who I am and go away seeing Jesus. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. You denied the Holy One and the just, asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. Peter, have a little political correctness. Do you have to be so straightforward? I mean, you know, sugarcoat this a little bit. I mean, you almost can't get away with this kind of talk anymore in the workplace, in the church. There's a whole movement within the, the you know, contemporary church that is softening things like this. You don't really wanna just start off by telling people that they're sinners doomed for hell. It's a little bit heavy. You wanna sneak up on them, make them feel good about themselves, and then, you know, you're really a sinner cringe a little bit as you say and Peter I love Peter he says guys you killed the Messiah I mean this this is bold he uses decidedly Jewish references that had specific meaning to his audience he called God the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob the God of our fathers obviously it's the God of the Bible but but he's referring them to the revelation God has given of himself in the scriptures and that's all we know about God All we know about God is what he has chosen to tell us of himself, and it's enough. It's everything that we need to know. He then used five technical terms which all describe their promised Messiah from those scriptures. The term servant, we kind of gloss over that. We talk about ourselves as servants and serving the Lord, but this term servant with a capital S means more to the Jews than it does to us. It is a name of their Messiah given to him in passages of Scripture like Isaiah 52 and 53. He is the servant, a specific servant who would come, their Messiah. Holy One, that's a title used of Messiah in Psalm 16, verse 10, and in Isaiah 31, verse 1. The just, or it could be translated the righteous, Another description and title of the Messiah used by Zechariah in chapter 9, verse 9, and by Isaiah in chapter 53, 11. In verse 18, Peter will use another official title by calling Jesus the Christ, the anointed one. In verse 22, the word prophet, again, a proper name used by Moses to describe the coming Messiah. And so these are titles of the person that every Jew was looking for throughout all of their history, the greater one than David, the greater one than Solomon, the greater one than Moses, who would establish the eternal kingdom of God. When they delivered up Jesus of Nazareth to be crucified, they killed that person that every generation of Jews had been counting on. 
To further emphasize his point, Peter said they released a murderer and rejected the prince of life. Prince means author and originator. You remember the story. Pilate wanted to both spare Jesus, knowing he was innocent, and appease the crowd by releasing a prisoner to them. And so he found the worst guy that he could get, Barabbas. And he got up in front of the Jews and said, okay, I'm going to release one of these two guys, Jesus or Saddam Hussein. (laughs) And the Jewish crowd said, release Saddam Hussein, crucified Jesus. That's a modern day equivalent. They murdered the, uh, they received a murderer and instead killed the prince of life. Now, all of this reads like a legal indictment accusing them of a crime, and it is. Peter indicted Israel as a nation with the crime of having their Messiah killed. There was hope for them still. God had raised Jesus from the dead. The apostles and disciples were witnesses of that resurrection. So was this miracle. He says in verse 16, his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. There was nothing magical about the name of Jesus as if, you know, it's not an incantation. It's not that you use the name. When Peter referred to his name and faith in his name, the Jews understood that he meant Jesus was still alive and you could therefore exercise faith in him as a living savior. You could have faith in a risen living Lord who was able to heal. Peter indicted them. The walking, leaping man proved his indictment. Now, before we move on, I want to make an application to ourselves. Your walk can indict those who are ignorant of Jesus, unbelievers. You were a lame man or woman. You were unable to approach God. You had no walk with God until Jesus healed you spiritually by saving you for eternity. You should be leaping with joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. Not necessarily physically, but spiritually, and it should affect your countenance and everything that you do. There should be things about your life that seem supernatural to others. Unbelievers should see you as having this overflowing joy, and then drawn to you, they can be told about the Lord. Our lives, our walk every day is an indictment or ought to be an indictment to unbelievers that they are missing something. It's not just that we believe one thing and they believe another. It's that we're going to heaven and they're going to hell. It's that we have our sins forgiven and blotted out and they don't. I mean, it's, it's a real either or. It's a black and white. And we, as we'll talk about at the end, we need to rejoice in those things so that others are indicted in the life that they're living and are drawn to Christ. Now, the second thing we want to talk about is that God's word invites ignorant men and women. It's in verses 17 through 26. If you look ahead into the fourth verse of chapter four, you see that many in this crowd believed Peter. 
either 5,000 more were added to the already large church or the total number of men in the church now totaled 5,000 after these conversions. Uh, You remember on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were saved. Then every day, many more were being saved. We don't know how many days or weeks transpired until this sermon. And then the number of the men was 5,000. It could be the total number or another 5,000. Let's just believe it's another 5,000 because we know God is able to and wants to save. And so this is a a growing, uh, healthy church. What it tells us is that it's not too late to believe for the Jews. Despite their heinous crime, God was reaching out to save them. Verse 17, yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. Now, the sense of the word ignorance is that they were spiritually blind to the truth. It, too, is kind of a technical word in Scripture. There's a reference to this kind of ignorance in Ephesians 4, verse 18. Paul the Apostle describes unbelievers saying, they have their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Now, those are a lot of different ways of saying that you're an unbeliever. There is a darkness that you live in. There is an ignorance about the things of God. There is a blindness to spiritual things. And so ignorance isn't an excuse. It's a condition that you're in before you get saved. If you want to have some fun with your coworkers and you're far enough away from them that they can't do anything, tell them that you learned at church how ignorant they are. Well, no, don't do that. That's one you don't want to do unless they understand the technical sense of the word. But they are, they're ignorant, they're blind, they're in darkness. You understand that if you're a Christian because so were you. You were blind and darkened and dead to spiritual things until the Lord used his word, probably through the testimony of another believer, to open the eyes of your heart to the truth. When the eyes of your heart are opened, you're confronted with Jesus as your Savior and you must choose to remain ignorant or to receive the truth. Verse 18, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Now the Jews ignored the verses that described the Messiah as suffering, even dying. They didn't expect their deliverer to be anything at all like Jesus. Their expectations built on centuries of of interpretation didn't prepare them for Jesus to suffer and die for their sins. It's a reminder to us, or one of the things this does is it reminds us, all of us have our own biases and prejudices. Even in the church, maybe especially in the church, if you've grown up in churches or been to church a lot, you believe some of the things you're taught and haven't checked them out for yourself. Hopefully you're being taught all good things, right things, but sometimes we have our own odd expectations of things. We read the scripture as if we understand it, but we only really understand it from an American point of view or a Western point of view or our own culture, those kinds of things. And and we we can make mistakes. We, We really need to have the Lord help us to keep our biases out of it. And the way to do that is just to admit you have biases. You may not even know what all of them are, but, you know, I I mean, I like to think I'm really, really, really smart. 
It helps me get through every day <laughs> when I do all kinds of really, really dumb things. And when Pam looks at me and says, how can you even teach the Bible when you can't have no common sense? And, you know, things like that, you know. Because I have no common sense. I mean, you, it, 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 it's kind of dangerous to be around me even, you know. But I like to think I'm really, really, really smart. And, 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 and so I have to remind myself I'm really, really, really not. And let me just read this and try and figure out what God is telling me without my bias. And I encourage all of you to think about just asking the Lord to open your eyes and heart to what he is really saying sometimes, what he actually intends to say, not what we already think he's going to say. And if you read a lot of books, commentaries and books of theology, you'll see biases. All of a sudden, somebody who you love to listen to or read their books, you think, where did he come up with that? That makes no sense at all. It does because he has a bias. He's already decided the gifts of the Spirit have ceased or that this is you know, what happens when, when you receive the Holy Spirit or whatever it would be. And, and people speak from their biases. And so be careful with that. And so the Jews, they weren't ready for a suffering Messiah. Now we don't know if this is the entire text of Peter's sermon. On the day of Pentecost, it says, with many other words he exhorted them. It's possible that we don't have the entire text of his sermon. He may have gone into some of these areas of scripture. There are many he could have chosen, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, many, many other verses and portions of scripture where he could show that their Messiah, the servant, the prophet, the holy one, the righteous one, would also suffer and die. And so he reasoned with them from Scripture. He was proving to them from the Word of God that Jesus was their Messiah and they had him killed. We have a, a phrase that we use. Uh, probably it's been around a long time. It's kind of newer to me. But a lot of times people say, not on my watch. In other words, you know, whatever bad is going to happen, it's not going to happen on my watch. I'm going to be diligent. We're going to get things done, get the job done, all of that. And so we, you know, no one wants something bad to happen on their watch. This audience, that nation at that time, they had just had their Messiah killed. Centuries of expectation and hope by their ancestors had just been destroyed on their watch. This is the worst thing that could possibly happen to a Jew or to the nation of Israel. The one person that every Jew looked forward to from the moment Abraham was called to create a new nation, the Messiah. He was there. He was in their midst. He was proving who he was beyond the shadow of a doubt, fulfilling the scripture, offering the kingdom of God and they said, give us Barabbas, kill him. On their watch, that happened. Uh, you're pretty low. And this is, this is low. What would you do? Well, Peter had already told them that their Messiah had risen from the dead and was alive, still working miracles. And so he says in verse 19, repent, be converted. Your sins will be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord so that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before 
whom heaven must receive until the times of the restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. This is the greatest second chance of all time to this particular generation. Now, times of refreshing, times of the restoration of all things, those again are technical terms. They refer to the spiritual and physical conditions that exist during the promised kingdom of God on the earth. Peter is letting them know the kingdom is still coming. God would send Jesus Christ a second time to establish it. The kingdom of God is a real, literal, physical rule of Jesus Christ over the earth from a throne in Jerusalem. We are not living in the kingdom now. It is not merely a spiritual state we achieve. We will not establish it and then invite the Lord to come back to rule over it. Those are all ideas that certain Christian groups have that are not biblical. It will be set up when Jesus returns from heaven in the second coming to earth. We expect it to last a thousand years because we are told it will in chapter 20 of the revelation of Jesus Christ. God has spoken of these things, Peter said, by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. First of all, like I'm fond of telling you, biblical Christianity is not a new invention. It is not a new religion. It didn't happen in the first century when Jesus was preaching and his followers came after him. Biblical Christianity was established in the Garden of Eden, but it was conceived in eternity past by the triune God before the world was created. And then Peter mentions here about the holy prophets, God has made unconditional promises to Abraham and David and others about their physical descendants that must be literally fulfilled. God is not through with Israel as a nation. Israel, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, the physical descendants of Abraham remain the key to Bible prophecy. We emphasize this over and over again. I hope you get tired of hearing it because that means you remember it because there are whole sec sections and segments of biblical Christianity that have decided that God is through with Israel. That when you read Israel, it just means believers. And so there were believers in the Old Testament. They were called Israel. They're believers in the New Testament. They're called the church. Well, that's not true. Israel is Israel. There were believers and unbelievers in it. The church is the church, and there are believers and unbelievers in it. God has a plan for Israel. He will keep his promises that he made to, his physical, to the physical descendants of Abraham. They're unconditional. If God doesn't keep his promises to the physical descendants of Abraham, he will not keep his promises to you. And so it's very important that we have this distinction. Israel is key. Now, if we take a survey of the entire Bible, this is what we expect will occur. Since Israel continued to reject Jesus nationally, we'll see this as the book of Acts ends, the kingdom on earth has been delayed. In the meantime, the Lord is building his church as men and women of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues receive Jesus Christ as their savior and are born again. The church age will end when a trumpet sounds and all the believers who have died during the church age are raised from the dead and brought to heaven. 
When those dead in Christ are raised, believers who are alive on the earth will be raptured. They will be immediately changed into their glorified bodies and caught away to heaven. God will then turn his attention to fulfilling his promises to the nation of Israel. Part of that will be the seven-year tribulation on the earth that prepares the Jews to look upon Jesus as their Messiah when he returns at the end of that seven years. Jesus returns in his second coming and he establishes the promised kingdom on the earth for a thousand years. As a footnote, we return with him to help him rule and reign. He doesn't need the help, but he loves us and gives us things to do. Personally, I wanna just run a Christian coffee shop. (laughs) After the thousand years are ended, the Lord will put down one final rebellion of unbelievers against him. Then he will destroy the heavens and the earth. He will create a new heaven and a new earth where we will live in bliss forever and ever and ever. You can read about that in Revelation 21 and 22. While waiting for God's prophetic plan to unfold, all men and women, not just Jews, are commanded to repent and be converted that their sins may be blotted out. God's word is being preached to ignorant men and women in order to open the eyes of their hearts that they might receive the Lord and be saved for eternity. Now, I don't know much about ancient writing and papyrus and things like that, but I'm told that when you wrote with ink on, in the first century and many centuries after that, that the ink didn't really absorb into the material. It, it sat on top of it. It, it had you know, uh, substance to it. And that's why sometimes in these shows and movies you'll see people shake. I think it's salt. Is it salt that they shake? You know, when they, they sign their name, John Hancock, and then they shake something over it to, to kind of quickly dry it so it won't smear. And if you looked at it horizontally, it would be raised. And so it's possible to scrape off and blot out everything that's written on that papyrus so that it's completely gone. We have to depend on, used to be white out. Have you ever tried to erase ink? You know, I used to buy these pens with a pen eraser. What a joke. They ought to just sell you scissors to go with it. Because, you know, you're erasing and you go right through the paper. Oh, yeah, that's gone. When I was at UC Riverside, I used to wait in line to use the IBM Selectric typewriter. It was the, you know, top of the line if you had a Selectric, you know. So you have, you're in there and it had that little ball that had all the letters on it. Man, that was cool unless you made one mistake. Then you had to have typewriter whiteout and you, you had to go back and put this little thing behind it and hit it and it never lined up right. Being an obsessive person, I couldn't have any mistakes. It either took me hours to type or I just kept redoing things over and over again. Oh! You know, you get right to, it got worse as you got to the bottom of the page because any slight error and you had to start all over. And so this is kind of cool, this idea of your sins being blotted out. It's as if there's a scroll in heaven that, that it, well, and for some of us, several truckloads, you know, <laughs> of scrolls that could be, you know, rolled out 
with all of your sins. I mean, you know, any person, I mean, even the nicest person here in the audience has a lot of sin when you think of, you know, the things that go on in your mind, not just the big things that you do and people know about, but just the the attitudes and the sins of the spirit. I mean, you know, you're talking about truckloads of stuff, maybe whole continents filled, you know, with paper for some people. Just on a daily basis, imagine how much data that would be. You need to have big hard drives, you know, to back that up. Anyway, so, so if you went, if those, you know, if you could go to those places, you know, this is your vault and, and stuff and open that up, it would be gone. It would be empty. It has been blotted out. It, it's not just erased and smeared all over the place. There's no record that it was ever there in the first place. That's the only thing I'm trying to emphasize because sometimes you can tell when something has been erased and something's been blotted out, it's completely different. It is just gone. It, it's like it was never there. What a beautiful thing that our sins might be blotted out. And if you're a Jew on that day, and for the first time, the heavy weight, I mean, think of the heavy weight of sin that you once had. Think if you're a Jew with that heavy weight of just personal sin, and then Peter stands up and he says, you see this lame man leaping? This could have been the kingdom of God. This is the streams breaking out in the desert. This is everything our forefathers and ancestors ever hoped for. Everything the scripture spoke of. And what happened? You killed the Messiah. I I don't know how you can live with that. You can't. Unless Jesus has risen from the dead and he is merciful and says, I will blot out your sins. And he did. And so in verse 22, Moses said truly to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Peter generally is saying that God is not through with you. Though you did this, though you are guilty nationally, God's still not through, still offering you the kingdom. Even after we get to the book of Acts and Paul has to turn away from the Jews and it's clear that there is no more offer of the kingdom of heaven on earth to the Jews at that time in that century, the Bible still says it's still coming. God's still going to regather his scattered people He's going to bring them back to their homeland. He's done that, but they're there in unbelief, and so he's still going to bring them to a place of belief. He's still going to return. They will recognize him as their Messiah. Our God is a merciful, miracle-working God. Now, Peter's arguments and appeals are all based on the word of God. It's a good model and a good method for us to follow. Oftentimes, it's hard, I mentioned biases and prejudices before, we also have our own opinions. Uh, You know, the old joke that if there are two people, there are three opinions. And, uh, you know, we're opinionated, we have an idea of how things, try and stick with what you know to be true from the word of God. 
uh, as I get older, uh, you know, and I forget more things, my answers more often than not are I don't know. Uh, and, and yet I'm more comfortable with that because a lot of times people are asking questions and I don't know, and I don't want to know. Uh, there's, a few, there's only a few things that I really know for sure, and they all have to do with Jesus Christ, and they all come from the scripture, and so that's all, that, let's just stick with that. Let's talk about what I do know because it's in God's word, and let's not get off on, maybe I have an opinion about this or opinion about that. We can talk in certain contexts, but let's just concentrate on what we know to be true because it's in the word of God. And this is why the word of God is always under such attack, even in the church. We, we, we have to continue to have a high regard for the word. God values the word above his own name, he says in scripture. It is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. Everything you need for life and godliness is in God's word. If there's something you think you need that's not in God's word, you don't need it. Everything you need is right there. It's able to discern, the Bible says, between the soul and the spirit. I I can't fathom that. I don't know, I understand a difference between soul and spirit because I was, we were soulishly active with conscience and thoughts and all that before we were born again. Then you're born again and you have the spirit of God living in you and your own spirit is alive. And so I know there's a difference between the soul and the spirit, but I can't, I can't tell, I can't discern it all the time. I, I don't know what my motives are sometimes for years, for example. But God says, well, here, here's the word of God. Read it, study it, let it study you. It will discern the deepest part of your heart. You know what this means? It means you don't need any therapy. If you're in therapy, talk to me later. I don't want to offend you, but uh, publicly, let me say this. You don't need psychotherapy if you have the word of God. No therapist can discern between your soul and your spirit, and that's where you need to get in order to be healed. You'd be better off going to any Bible study where the word of God is being read and taught than to years of psychotherapy that are based on the theories and the thoughts and the opinions of men, which are nothing but philosophies on how you should live. The word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to discern, to help, and to heal. The sermon ends as it began on a decidedly Jewish note. The nation of Israel is extremely important in the scheme of Bible prophecy. God who cannot lie will accomplish for Israel everything he has promised them. The ignorant will miss the bliss of eternal life. Their ignorance is overcome by exposure to the word of God. You and I have the word of God to share. The only thing sometimes missing if you wanna compare us to what happened in this chapter, is the leaping. We're not always leaping for joy as Christians. It's not a function of personality. Some people are more extroverted, they're more exuberant, they smile more, they're more approachable. I shouldn't say this, but I like looking at some of you more on Sunday mornings because you have happy faces. Some of you have sad faces. And so I'm always looking for a happy face because I don't know if what I'm saying makes any sense. But it's not a function of personality. 
This isn't where, okay, I need to be more outgoing or extrovert. I have to go to Dale Carnegie classes and you know, figure out. So that's, it has nothing to do with personality. This is something that happens inside of you, in your spirit, that bubbles over supernaturally that other people respond to in a dimension that we don't even really understand. It, it, it has to do with you and I being restored constantly to the joy of our salvation. Some of you grew up in Christian families. You, you, maybe you've been Christian your whole life, and so I can't speak to your experience. You're gonna have to tell me more about that, but I know my experience coming to Christ later in life, and, and there was such an incredible joy the moment I went from darkness to life, from blindness to sight, knowing that my sins had been forgiven. And for a while, both my wife and I, people just looked at us and said, what's different about you guys? We didn't even say anything. They just said, what's different about you guys? There was some, I mean, and you know, I, I used to look in the mirror and say, I don't know what it is. Oh, I'm, am I more handsome than I used to be? No. That's impossible, but uh, <laughs> God does this, so it, it has, it's, it's a spiritual thing. Now, here's what happens. You get saved, or, or you're saved, and then the minute you're saved, or, or, and every minute after that, there is a cosmic killjoy. He's the devil, and one of the things he wants to do is rob the joy of your salvation. And he has all kinds of tools in his arsenal. Uh, he, you know, he, he has the world and your flesh. And God sometimes gives him parameters that we don't like. And so in point of fact, what happens is you have this joy and then life starts to come at you really fast. People you love die. People you love get sick. Tragedies are happening in your immediate family, in the families of people that you know and love. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. There's always some crazy person with his finger on the nuclear button. The doomsday clock has been moved. Now I think it's three minutes to midnight. You know, these are scientists who follow how serious the nuclear threat is. For a long time it was at five minutes to midnight, midnight being of course the end of the world. Now they've moved it the first time in several years. We're closer to midnight you start to get freaked out. And just daily life, the grind of daily living, the, you know, just the, the fact that we live in a fallen world. I went out into my backyard for the first time in a week and, and it's, it's, been, it's like the Amazon back there. <laughs> it's been overrun by weeds of various kinds. I think it needs to be burned out, you know? I mean, it's just crazy, all the things that happen in our world. And little by little by little, your joy gets robbed. You're still a Christian. You love the Lord. You talk about the things of the Lord. Nothing's really happening in your life because the joy of your salvation has been snuffed out. The point of this message is that we ought to be the lame men and women who are leaping for joy. We have so much to be joyous about. You were dead, you're alive, you were blind, now you see. You know Jesus Christ, you, he's, he's set you free, he saved you, he's blotted out all your sins, past, present, and future. Return to him, 
Let him restore the joy of your salvation. You don't even have to work at it. It's just a return to the things of the Lord. Do basic Christian things. Believe his word. Let it have its richness in your life. And people will be drawn to you again. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for these things. You're a good and gracious God. You give us so many exhortations in Scripture, but also pictures, Lord, that we can uh, hold on to and understand. We do want to be the lame men and women who leap in our society today. We want others to be drawn to us because we know what to tell them. We may not have the eloquence. We may not be able to put our words in, in the most beautiful sentences, Lord, but we can tell them what you've done in our life and who you are in our life. We can bring them along, Lord, to church. We can pray with them and for them, invite them to receive the Lord. We can do all of those things. What I'm struck with, Lord, in the book of Acts here is that so much was happening. You were doing things, and and the apostles just made a witness of what you were doing. They didn't really have to do anything except go from place to place and, and be sensitive to your leading. We want to return to that simplicity, to that childlike faith of holding on to you in every crowd and then having the crowd, in a sense, Lord, look at us and not see us but see you, the risen Lord of glory. I know my brothers and sisters want to be used more. They want to be uh, more effective in their ministries, Lord. Let's put all of that aside and just return to a place of just wanting to be at your feet, in your presence, have our joy restored. Come to a place where a relationship with you is, is sufficient for us. And then all of these other things will be added. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. Wednesday night, communion. Uh, even if you don't normally come on Wednesday night, I know it can be difficult. Midweek, kids got to go to school, you got to go to work, all that kind of stuff. But make a sacrifice every now and then. Come on out on a Wednesday night, especially for communion. Uh, a neat time of, of just praying with one another and uh, just gathering around the Lord's table. A neat spiritual time. You're always, we're always done by 8.15, so you can plan your night accordingly. Some of the guys will be down here in front, as they always are. It's their deepest longing and desire to pray with you. If you feel like you have an issue or, uh, you know, an event that requires prayer, you want to agree with someone, come forward and uh, give them the opportunity to lay hands on you and pray with you. God bless you.